This is Shaping Logics. Our guest today is Jim Brown of Public Architecture and Planning. Our conversation mainly focused on two ongoing projects that he has been involved in for several years. Um, one is the Build a Park organization, which is proposing a binational park at the existing Friendship Park between the San Diego-Tijuana border. The other is Brand Salt, a culture hub in Logan Heights that serves as a gallery and experimental center for the creative community. He shared some great stories about working with Peter Eisenman and how that compared to working with Ted Smith here in San Diego. Jim also has some great advice for recent graduates, explaining the importance of working on your own projects as soon as possible. Thanks for listening. Here's the episode. Yeah, Jim, so maybe if you want to give us a little bit of an introduction, um, like how did you, are you from San Diego originally or did you get here somehow? I ended up settling in San Diego, so I consider you know high school San Diego my home. I went to uh, I went to Southwestern nice. Junior College right out of high school because uh, nobody in my family had thought, gone to college, uh, and I didn't have the experience or the know-how really to put myself in the right spot at the right time to even apply. I didn't know I didn't didn't really know how to do it. And I the only reason I chose architecture it was I didn't even choose architecture. I I liked mechanical drawing. And I still do. I love drafting. But I like mechanical drawing in high school. And 100% based on that, I chose architecture, <laughs> which we all know like it has really nothing to do with, with design. But I chose it, and I got lucky. I found a mentor at Southwestern, uh, Wayne yeah. Donaldson, who went on to, to co-found the New School of Architecture with Dick Welsh. And both of those guys were my teachers there and influenced me greatly. And... Wayne was instrumental in, in making sure that I was able to transfer to a four-year Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, and that, that kind of launched me from there. Yeah, there's this kind of happenstance that I got into architecture, but man, am I glad I did! It's a it's a really fun, really really fun career because it's so varied. You know, we can do we have we have sort of broad-based experiences and knowledge. Yeah. You know, we're not maybe not experts at everything, but we're not afraid to like teach ourselves things and, and solve problems so it's a really invigorating career that, that leads i think architecture students and design students in general down all these uh, small pathways and alleyways that, that 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 they normally wouldn't have done it's really really fun oh yeah it's really um interesting because a lot of uh architecture also you know in school they tell you you know you have to travel uh to like get to know more <laughs> And I'm assuming, as you mentioned, if you're moving around a lot, is, did that influence a lot or did, did that come early? Like the traveling um, came after you started architecture. Did you have any influence, I guess, from you early on moving around uh, in your work? I'd say the, the early traveling was in the back of a Rambler station wagon. So. <laughs> I don't know if I would equate that with the dream of, you know, getting on an airplane yeah. and going to Europe, which I, which I finally did um, my fifth year of nice. architecture school. I hadn't, been, I hadn't been out of the country before, and I, I did my fifth year Ooh, in Florence. Nice. Oh, cool. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, what an eye-opener. Yeah, that. And I went early, did a little traveling mm. with, with a friend of mine. And, yeah, of course, tra travel is one of, the, one of our great yeah. teachers. It's probably probably the greatest teacher it's so important to see other other things and be exposed to completely new cultures 
yeah, it, it, it makes you more a more open person. Sure. Critically That's important. Good. When did when did you guys when did you guys start? I I did in my fourth year. I did a semester abroad in China, um, which was really interesting. And I mean, and did, we did like Mexico stuff as well, like Mexico City. Went to like South uh, Oaxaca, like Northern Mexico as well. Well, the hard. This is all during you know different studios, which is great. Like Woodbury teachers are great uh, trying to push that sort of uh, travel initiative and 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 um, proposing projects down there, which is really really helpful and you know it expands your design approach, I guess you know. Yeah. yeah. And Abel, you you um, went to Rome, right? Yeah, I went to Rome on my last year. Uh, that was that was amazing. Um, yeah, like I had a, I had been to. You mentioned Miguel mentioned yeah. Oaxaca. I want to go to Oaxaca so badly right now. It's amazing. You yet, should definitely go. What about this is kind of random? But I somebody told me once that you walked to the border one time. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, I walked. Yeah, I'm living on Rainerd Way. You know where that is? Rainerd Way. It's like in it's in Hillcrest. Oh, I think I, yeah, I think so. I was and uh, and I decided to walk to Tecate. Oh, wow! <laughs> so it took wow. two days. Oh my god! And I just I just walked like on the ninth. I just basically walked first. First, we you know walked across town. I think I forget. I think I went up University Avenue for a mm. long time. Basically. Where did I bowl? And I stopped at a bowling alley and, and bowled a couple of lines. <laughs> I, was that like where was I? Where I bowl? I can't remember where I bowled. Now, but then I, you know, then I hit the ninety four essentially and just walked alongside the ninety four hmm. all the way to the day. And then, I, you know, with no advanced planning, like I didn't have a water, <laughs> I didn't have a backpack, and zero. Of course, you don't really need water. You can always buy water, like at a store, or a right. gas station, right? That's not a big deal, but um, <laughs> didn't think ahead like, oh yeah, I'm gonna have to sleep out here. Oh, <laughs> so, like it was starting to get dark, and I'm in this. I saw a phone booth that had like you know the yellow pages back when there were still phone booths with the yellow page. So I was looking for places to stay, and there was this Airbnb. Uh, no, not an Airbnb. A bed, a bed and breakfast. Hmm. I can't remember the name now, but it was like out in the middle of nowhere, like kind of close getting closer to Dolzera, and I stopped there. I called. They said, yeah, you can come. You're going to miss dinner. So, oh, that's all right. <laughs> so I arrived after dark, and I opened. I was exhausted, utterly exhausted. I did it with a buddy of mine, Steve mm. Foreman. Utterly exhausted. Like, like all these diners, like there's 10 people around this table, which is like laden with insanely beautiful French cuisine. It turns out the owner of this place had moved out there. He was a French chef huh. and had grown his own vegetables, raised wow. his own animals. It was just serving. This is way before anyone was advertising this kind of, you know, farm to table ideal. So I'd never even come across it. And man, we went upstairs and showered, came back down, and everyone just kind of, you know, sort of slowed their 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 eating down just to to hear our story of why we had we had walked from San Diego that far out. So we ate and you know food Food. I remember that. Dinner yeah. So I think I got drunk on my, my first sip of wine too because my body was like so depleted. 
it just filled up my body in one sip of wine. <laughs> that's that's actually that's actually pretty good. Yeah, Two yeah, days. I mean, Tecate is really far. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh we. Yo. Oh we. I, yeah. I forget. I used to know exactly how far it was, but it was like twenty something miles each day. Hmm. You know, it was like yeah. serious, serious hiking. I think one day was thirty or something. I don't yeah. know. It was a lot. Was that's a lot. crazy. That's... And uh, yeah, we got there. And, we stayed in a motel that we found then we convinced our girlfriends to come pick us up I mean yeah that that must have been like really um, because I mean San Diego is a unique place as far as um, like border conditions and you coming from Canada I mean was it like a like a shock seeing um, like the relationship we have with our neighbors down south and kind of like how the dynamic works it was, it was pretty long ago. It was nothing like it is now. You know, right. now with the heightened security and the, the double fencing <clears throat> and the scrutiny. No, like then it was so easy just to walk across. You didn't need right. a passport, right? right. You just, it just said you have an ID, a driver's license or something like that. And that was the end of it. Mm. Going both ways. There was like nothing to it. It was, it was super casual, extremely easy. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, well, I'm sorry. What year did what did you get here? Uh, did I get to San Diego? Yeah. Um, let's see, seventy-four. Uh, oh yeah, 74. I, can, I can imagine it was yeah. a totally different time back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what kind of going off of that when you like when you look at the border and kind of how it has evolved or changed over the years? Like, what do you see when you're looking at it? Uh, the main feeling I have is fear, fear for our future. Like we're, I believe we're, we're close to a tipping point. Uh, there's, there's gonna, there's already started to be the, like world migrations mm-hmm. caused by a lot of unrest, a lot of wars, and now climate change, famine, and now the actual sea level rising, which hasn't even really hit yet. I mean, that's going to hit over the next several hundred years, but people are going to be seeking new homes just out of necessity and we're already i hate how we're ratcheting up the our, we have like this this fear that started that the the average american is starting to feel towards citizens of mexico and that is there's no reason for that if if our best security with our neighbors and we have to be close friends with our neighbors in situations that are going to start arising in the future they're, they're our best security and to build a bigger, taller fence or more numerous fences is the opposite thing that we need to do. We need to embrace each other, engage in open trade, uh, open communication, and less security. Friendship is our best security. That, that's part of the reason I started with a, a, a group of people to propose a, a binational park right. symbol of this yearning on the border between San Diego and Tijuana. At the, at the Pacific Ocean Alliance. Right. Give, give us a little bit more on the story about that um, project and how it kind of what, what it looks like right now and what you guys are proposing. My involvement started, man, in 2009. I had, at that moment, I had been selected on a mid career fellowship through the Graduate School of Design at Harvard called a, called a Loeb Fellowship, L O E B. And it's an interesting fellowship. They don't ask anything of you. You you basically you can move to Cambridge, and I moved there with my wife and my daughter. 
Uh, they put you up in, a, in an apartment. And um, there's, there's 10 fellows chosen from around the world each year. Mm. And you can take any classes that you want at Harvard or MIT, but you're, the goal is not to try and get a degree or anything. Okay. The goal is just to, to learn for learning's sake and to listen. And then think about, I mean, what they like to see is people go, who go back to their hometowns or to a new town and, and make a little bit of a change in their practice. Um, and so that you're influenced to perhaps give, give more of yourself to the community rather than just, they don't necessarily want you to go back and they want you to continue to be good designers, for example, but they expect you to take a little bit more interest in being a leader in the community. That's what they hope anyway. Several low fellows go turn out to be politicians. <laughs> they go back to their hometown, wow. run for office, try and change policy, big, big, big issues like that. But when I, when I came, when I left, I did want to study something just as like a project to spend time on. And I decided to go there and design, think about what a binational city would be like, mm. and to try and take some tentative steps, artistic steps. My studies were all mm -hmm. art-based. They weren't. They weren't like architectural form-based at all. They were. They were probably 100% art, actually. And I did that. I had a pretty good body of work by the time I came back. And in and then that one year absence. Uh, Homeland Security had built a second wall wow. uh, about 100 feet away from the first one. So you could no longer approach the primary fence. And at that moment, I, I didn't know anything about this meeting space called Friendship Park. I did, I, I'd never been, I'd never heard of it. And my work was exhibited, my, my tentative studies on the binational city was exhibited at the Contemporary Museum of Art in La Jolla. Oh, nice. And a couple people came and saw it and they said, hey, we need help. We're working on this project down in the area that you're studying, but we need, we have specific needs. Like we, we, there's an important historic meeting place that has been blocked by the addition of the second wall. And if there's any help you can give us in communicating with border patrol or just joining our group, because we see that you have an interest in the border, we'd appreciate it. So I, I said, yeah, I, I want to hear more about it. And that started like that, that was in 2009. Hmm. So over the last 10 years more, our primary goal has been to just maintain the ability for families to meet at the primary events. It is, but it's been a fight. I mean, we had for every small advance that we make with Border Patrol in uh, making us like at first, the first condition was we're going to give you a four foot wide path. <laughs> through this no man's land between the fences. And then you can arrive at the fence, but you can all the, the primary fence, but you have to stay 10 feet back. Okay. So it was just <laughs> awesome. So I got involved and started designing alternatives for that. So it didn't seem just so horribly oppressive. Mm. And it still was and is oppressive. The current condition at Friendship Park, which still exists today, you can still go and meet your your family there only on Saturdays and Sundays from 10 to 2. Even that wow. is so restrictive, right? Right, that is... It's yeah, and it's such an important part that you can imagine. It's for people that don't have the freedom to cross the border when they wish. There's things that happen in your lives, like the first time you want to show your baby to their grandparents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah? These kind of big moments will drive people to travel 
thousands of miles to come to this meeting place. We have people literally travel thousands of miles to come here to see like their parents for the last time, to see the new grandchild, to see their brother that they haven't seen in 20 yeah. years or something. Every, every week there's big moments like this that you're thinking, geez, this is, this is just stunning in its importance. So it's a, as, as important as this meeting space is, and that's why we've fought for 10 years to maintain it. That's why we have gone through all the work. It's the ugliest <laughs> part I've ever heard. Certainly, I've, I've never seen a park that's, that's um, uh, less attractive than Friendship Park is right now. Yeah. It's unacceptable. But use is so important that we, we've been fighting to keep it open. Now, we're starting something new. We're starting a, a different initiative now. Um, we are uh, starting a 12-month process to create a truly binational park mm -hmm. on that site. A binational park means you're not touching fingertips through a mesh. You're in a space together and a big space. Our, our space is 40 acres on the U.S. side and 48 acres on the Mexican side. It's immense. On the U.S. side, it, it is comprised of some disturbed areas at the southern edge of a beautiful estuary, kind of where there's a parking lot now and a, and a park run by the state, a state park. Um, and our goal is to make that a pedestrian-only uh, international border crossing, which takes an act of Congress. Wow. So our goal of the next 12 months is to create a visionary plan um, that, and, and the reason why we picked 12 months, it started in August of 2020, on August 18th of 2021 is the 50th anniversary of Friendship oh, Park, the meeting space. That's when we're going to really officially release a vision for International Friendship Park. And we are not going to do it by ourselves. We're going to hold a series of design competitions, international design competitions. The first one will be released in October, early October, and it will deal with, it's going to deal with little pieces of the park. Each one will be kind of a distinct piece because it's a big yeah, project, yeah, right? Big. It has many moving pieces in it. And imagine like, on the, on, so we are not proposing at all. Imagine the 40 acres uh, at Playa. We're not proposing we tear down all those buildings and make a park, mm -hmm. right? A grassy mm -hmm. field or something. No. Every one of those buildings will stay. All the homes, all the businesses, all the restaurants. We're hoping that the bull, the old historic bull ring remains. All the current ownerships will stay the same, but it all becomes part of this binational park. So really, in a lot of ways, it, it is becoming a little bit, bit of a binational city. And you can imagine that there's a beautiful boardwalk in Playas down there, right across the fence. Imagine stringing that boardwalk north into the United States and then adding more residences, shops, restaurants. Imagine up here that right on the border that extends 2,000 feet to the sea, lined with shops, restaurants, hotels, meeting spaces, a, a really, truly active, active environment, and a, a really vast one too. A trolley going from the San Diego side out through the edge of the estuary and bringing people there with, a, with an energy-efficient and non-polluting mode, no cars, because one of our primary goals is to protect the estuary right. on our side. And then the bustling city of Playas just extending through the border and like encroaching into the U.S. and like showing a real spirit of cooperation, you know, and dual purpose 
That's, that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think... It's exciting. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Abel. I was just going to kind of comment that I, I think a lot of people don't <clears throat> kind of appreciate the unique condition that is, especially, you know, I mean, Friendship Park, definitely, but beyond the, you know, like how... I forget the word that it's called. It's something that's like mega city or something like that, where it's like two cities, you know, like Tijuana and San Diego are really, you know, if you just think of of, of us as like a, a species, you know, it's, it's like the board is just like a physical thing, but like a conglomerate, you know, it's like one, it's like one massive hive. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, for us to be separated, um, not just physically, but separated with our, we're starting to believe, I'm, I'm so worried that our citizens and the citizens of Mexico, both the U.S. citizens and the citizens of Mexico, are starting to believe the rhetoric of our leaders. <laughs> right. That we, that it's an unsafe condition. We have to protect ourselves. This is very destructive a very destructive thought process for the long-term health of our, the relationship between our countries and not just the formal government relationships, but the relationship between the citizens of our two countries. That's the most important thing. That, that's why this, that's why this park is, this, it's a small gesture on this really long, expensive border, but it will make a statement that the citizens of both countries are still friends. Mm -hmm. We are tight, and we must be. The best security that either country can have is friendship and cooperation. There's no amount of you know, soldiers and machine guns and steel mesh fencing that will make us safer. That, that endangers our safety more than anything else. And I, we, we really feel, we also, we do feel this is not a, uh, a Democratic or a Republican understanding and wish. This is a wish from the people. This will, this will cut across both parties. A symbol of friendship is not just one party can't hold that. Everyone needs to hold it, and I think everyone can. If Our hope is that enough people will join our efforts, participate in the efforts, spread the word about some of the imagery and the ideas that they see coming out. And then one day, somebody in Washington is going to pick it up and, and propose it. It will happen in our lifetime. There's been other things like, I, when I was a, back to traveling as a student, I, I went through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin from West Berlin. Wow. Back when there was still the Berlin Wall. Damn. At, the mo at that moment, there was no clue to that thing. You know, I just assumed that would be there forever. You know, it was, it was such a solid wall. There was no penetrating it. It just seemed like it was always there and it always would be. But man, when that thing came down, it came down seemingly overnight, and that, that's the kind of moment. That's the kind of thing we can we can cause to happen with International Friendship Park. It might like seem like pointless, like we're hitting our head against the wall and even proposing such a preposterous thing. It you know, no one wants to do it. The political discourse is so battered and fragmented that we couldn't possibly agree on doing this. But it's going to capture the public imagination. And then suddenly it's going to be a race to do it. And it will be, it will be, it will be beautiful when it happens. And yeah, it, it will happen. It's too, 
Yeah, I love how hopeful you are. You are, and uh, it's uh, it's great. <laughs> it's great. I mean, I I are you getting a lot of support uh, for this? I mean, is there a metric where I know um, for anybody listening, I know you you can go to buildthatpark.org, right? Is that that's a website where you can see kind of like uh, the proposal? Um, yeah. Yeah, thanks for thanks for mentioning that, Miguel. Appreciate that. Yeah, you can go on that website, buildthatpark.org. You can you can sign a petition to support us. Uh, you can keep updated on all the design progress. Once the once the competition start happening, we're going to post all of these ideas. Uh, right now, we're collecting stories from uh, stakeholders, organizations that work on the border, anyone that's had experience at Friendship Park or the border in general. Uh, in a way, as architects, those are our clients, right? So the more voices we hear. And it's not just the, the, the thing that's crucial for me, well, one of the many things that's crucial is getting the input from the Kumeyaay Nation. Right. You know, we, this is not just a Mexican-American discussion. This is the, the land that this international, this binational park will rest on. This also belongs to the Kumeyaay Nation. So, and there's some significant sites very close to, to where we are that need to be honored and explained and uh, and and made made like made integral to the success of the binational park and like designed around not not just like mentioned in the back of a book oh yes uh, the Kumeyaay were once here too no like actually take it into consideration listen to the voices and include it in the design oh, that's great have you have you encountered any sort of um opposition to this um as far as like no 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 not no you know if we if we were trying to get like a stamp like a <laughs> permit or something right hmm. now it, it is not our intention to gain approvals of the dozens probably hundreds of governmental agencies that work together in the border it would never we would we would never achieve that goal <laughs> we are instead just focusing on the visionary plan what it could be and right. just define that vision to capture people's imaginations they'll tell their representatives the local representatives will tell the state government and then on to washington and one day one day it will happen and then once congress acts on it then the nitty-gritty yeah. of the approvals happen that's that's not our <laughs> gig we don't want to do that <laughs> design a beautiful potential future yeah i mean it looks great we had a we had a really encouraging meeting with the the mexican consulate there in uh, little italy Mm. last week we presented to them in a zoom call and you know they they know a lot about the border of course but they didn't know much about our project but they were extremely energized at the end of it and they're gonna now give us some very much needed assistance in, in communicating with the Mex- some Mexican authorities about the project, which is really going to be exciting. We're going to have a conversation with uh, some some folks in Mexico City next week, which can hardly wait. To see That's really cool. That. That's yeah, it's great to see that it's being. Um, it's growing. It's like it's, you're, yeah, it's growing. You're like it's, planting it's like seeds. a movement. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I um I visited the park um a while back. I mean, last time I was there, maybe like two two years ago i want to say and it was very if i I can obviously i came from the u.s side and you know through the beach you know you park on that side and there's kind of like a trail and then you hit you hit the beach and i remember i was i went with my girlfriend at the time and 
it was kind of strange because she was kind of like treating us a beach and just kind of like sunbathing there and it was it, fe- it felt very dystopian yeah. in a way because you see the this beach that's kind of it's it's pretty and it's and it's like there's this fence just like aggressively cutting through the beach the the, the front of the ocean there and it's very divided and there's nobody there on our side uh, at least when i went there was like no one there it looked empty and, and it looked very um and on the other side there was a lot of people and there was kind of like there was a lot of activity so it was very um yeah it was kind of like a sobering moment for me um as far as like wow we're, we really do not want like to associate you know like we do not want like it's like the opposite of friendship we're not like reaching out we're kind of like just negating that they're there and just kind of like putting our our, our, our our friends up really you know uh it's really strange i mean i encourage yeah. people to see it uh right now uh because it would it would it makes sense what you're doing like this is like not what we want we want to do the opposite you know we we do want to be friends uh, in my opinion yeah there's some there's been people some of my um colleagues that are i've been working with with the with the friendship part, the meet just the meeting space struggle over the last 10 years, put in an incredible amount of time keeping that meeting space going. There's John, uh, there's a Methodist minister named John Bannistill who has a church service every Sunday huh. at Friendship Park wow. up against the inner fence. They, he does a neat thing. He gets together with a, a, a like-minded pastor. They talk together and, and, make the sacrament official and then they split it and one minister goes into Tijuana and John goes to Friendship Park and they hold the church service wow. through the fence every Sunday. It, uh, it's really moving to think that he's been doing that for 10 years now. Wow. It's an amazing uh, contribution to the power of Friendship Park. And there's another member, Dan Watman, who's been maintaining a binational garden in that space for those same 10 years, just completely by force of will. Hmm. There's no water out there. Um, it, the Border Patrol makes it really hard for him to, to work in the garden. Um, they're always tearing up his plants, oh but he's just out there every week or once every two weeks, <clears throat> building, planting, planting. He has to water it. He has to, he has to go to Tijuana and water it through the fence wow. with a hose because Border Patrol won't give him water. It's it's like just the hard, the most most difficult thing you could imagine to do, and yet he's done it. But he's made he's made a really beautiful scene out of it too. Yeah. And, there, and there's there's a lot, and there's other st- stories like that. There's wonderful people working. I, I mean, it's it's such a um like a hot, almost like um, activity spot as far as just like imagery and um. Like sort of action. I, I I do remember when um when this whole issue with you know like the caravan people coming. Do you remember that? And 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 people kind of ended up there. And yeah. it was such a powerful powerful imagery where they ended up there. And then you know you kind of had like the rhetoric and and all this other stuff. But it was it was really interesting to see that they came there. And it's like it feels like yeah, it's 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 like a meeting spot. And it feels like this this could be like a, an assembly point, um like a hot spot sort of thing. The caravan people came to Bread and Salt oh, after no that and oh, had a wow. big meal. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that was that was that was really wonderful. Yeah, 
Oh wow! Uh, uh, yeah, I uh, pivoted a little uh, off track here. But how long have you um, had uh, bread and salt? Bread and salt. We've had about the same amount of time. We had bread and salt just over ten years now. Oh wow! Yeah, that was unexpected. We didn't. That was nothing that was planned at all. It's like we. I'll tell you the short story behind it. We, we, I mean, I I had no interest in starting a community arts building. But I was driving around one day in, in Logan Heights, and I always like looking at old buildings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've always—I just like—I've always liked my whole mm-hmm. career old things. I, I used to make furniture out of found objects. That's how. That's my. After I graduated from school, I worked for Ted Smith. First, I worked for Peter Eisenman oh, in New wow. York for a year, and then I San Diego. I worked for Ted Smith, two very different but equally talented <laughs> architects, and then I. I was starting to feel pretty hot about myself, so I went out. out, out there wasn't any work. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have any work. <laughs> so I, I tried to make a living for the first few years making furniture. Really, I mean, I made furniture and was you know digging holes and putting. I was building fences. I was doing all sorts of just hands-on stuff. I was trying, trying to at least I got the design part of it. I got to design it because some of these early projects, like you draw something up and a lot of times I was working in both wood and metal, and if you give it to a contractor, it would freak hmm. them out, and they they put this gigantic price tag on it, and you're going, that can't be true. Like, <laughs> why? It's just a little metal. Wood. And they said, dude, we gotta like, we gotta get a metal guy, we gotta hire a metal guy, we gotta get a wood guy, we got all these trades you're putting. And so that's what caused, you know, just the idea, like, go out and do it yourself. Like, design it and build it, because you, you, oh, you yeah. know how it can be done. Right, so that—that's what they kind of get caught on a got off on a design build tangent in, <laughs> in, that, in that manner. But um, oh yeah, I'm kind of getting off topic. Uh, Abel, no, sorry about fine. that. That's... You asked me a very <laughs> simple right. question about Britain, so. <laughs> but, Yeah, back to the, back to the found object. So I always loved found objects. I started making stuff out of beautiful sculptural found stuff, almost like the you know in, heavily influenced by the Dada art nice. of the twenties mm, also. Kurt Schwitters, the collages of Kurt right. Schwitters was like right, right at front of my brain, which I, I was in love with that artist so much. So it carried over into my love of old buildings. I just like to look at them, you know, and be inside of them. And I was driving around, back to the original question, I was driving around Logan Heights and I saw this building and it, you know, it, it didn't look that from the front, bread and salt doesn't look very big it's just like a one-story mm-hmm. building yeah. i'd never even noticed it before but i look up and i was admiring it and i saw a sign and there's a for sale sign on it i go oh that's weird and even that would not have triggered anything in me because i could see how long the building was right. it's like ridiculously <laughs> huge it's like oh well, that's cool but then i recognized the name on the for sale sign the realtor because mm. this guy the realtor he had called me like just like a month before to talk to him about doing a remodel in his house. It didn't work out. He turns out he didn't have the budget to do it. But, you know, I liked him and he was easy to talk to. So I saw his name. I go, well, I need to at least call yeah. this guy. So I called him. I said, hey, Jack, this is Jim. Um, I'm the guy that you didn't hire from a month ago. He goes, oh, yeah, let's put him. I said, well, I'm just seeing your name on this big building. What's, the, what's going on with this building? Like, how much is this building? He goes, oh. That's like the web. That's a Weber Bakery, and they're in bankruptcy, uh, you know, because White 
they, they made white bread. I guess that bread, of course, we all know that kind of unhealthy, yeah. spongy white bread sort of uh, favor nationally. So they, they pretty much went out of business. And, and uh, he said, it's a really good price. And he told me the price. And I said, well, that is a really good price, but it's still, you know, I don't have, any, I don't have that kind of money. You know, I'm close to what I have. And I said, okay, well, Jack, would they would they buy it? Would they sell it for such and such? I said, around. He goes, maybe. <laughs> and I'm thinking, there's no freaking way they do that. But anyway, I said, okay, okay, make it, make an offer. Now, keep in mind, I didn't even have that money, so <laughs> I didn't have any. But um, he made the offer, and they they pretty much accepted it. Oh wow! They counted some minuscule amount. And then I was in this position where I knew this was a great, great thing that I just couldn't let go. But I still didn't know how to make it happen. But I, I just put all my thought and resources into it for the next two months and, and pulled it together and made it happen. Then, since you're not looking for a building, you're not really looking to do anything, right? I mean, we so we locked in this building, and it's like, <laughs> shit, now what? So. We were in a precarious situation because the building had lost its previously conformed mm. uses. Like it used right. to be a factory, but it had been it had been abandoned for more than five years, which that means in the city it loses all rights to that use because the zoning had changed in the meantime, and it was only zoned for I think a total of four right. houses hmm. on the whole lot. The whole thing had really difficult mm. zoning. So it's really not, it's kind of a useless building in a way. <laughs> but then I thought there is a strategy you can do. There's a tech, there's a, uh, within the municipal code, you can, you can reinstate the pre, the pre, pre-existing uses. You can go through a process with the community, go to a bunch of meetings, uh, go through the planning department and reinstate the existing uses. So we did that process and it worked. The community accepted it. In the meantime, we decided that we wanted to, bring artisans and artists, but really at the time, mostly people that work with their hands, like furniture makers, welders, Mm -hmm. artisans into the building and create this like hands-on builder society, because that was the kind of work I was doing at the time. So we we were able to tell the building department, and this was wonderful, like we, instead of saying it it was a factory and we want to be, we want to be a factory again. I broke the factory into the components. Yes, it was a factory, so we want that. So that means like welders can work, woodworkers can work. So that like gets all our crafts uh, okay. But they also sold bread there. <laughs> so it was a retail store. And the planning department agreed with that. We said, and they also had assembly there because they used to have weddings and high school dances and church services mm-hmm. up on the second floor, which we found historic proof of that. And they agreed with that. And so basically, we got oh, we 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 designed a whole mixed-use building and got approval wow. through that process. So doing, and it was risky, but but we did it. We prevailed in the end. It was it was a wild, interesting fight. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, and we and the way we built it then. So then, so we had some artisans, and I think that the real success of Bread and Salt is the people. It's, it's not so much the plan. Mm-hmm. It's the quality of the people that we brought in. And we brought in the best people that we know. You know someone like mm-hmm. Jason Lane, who's, who 
who is an incredible designer and craftsman. Uh, there was a there was a gallery called Ice Gallery at the time in Horton Park, where I, where I live now. And about a mile, oh, a half a mile from my house, they had a little gallery, and we had been admiring their installations there. And they lost their space because that's at the corner of 30th and Yupas. Jonathan Siegel oh, built yeah. that mm. big project where the noodle shop was cornered. Uh, so they were getting kicked out. And we said, hey, we love your work. If you come to Bread and Salt, we'll give you free space and just come and wow. do your thing there. And it's just reaching out. And then the Athenaeum, they, at my old office in University Heights, they had rented space from me there doing instructional studios and painting, sculpture, printmaking. We asked them if they'd come with us. They, they said they would. They came with us. Hmm. And the Athenaeum yeah, was funny. Like, they, so 20 years ago, when they came to University Heights in our old building, they were hesitated to come because they thought the area was a little bit sketchy, <laughs> which was really funny. <laughs> then we had to go through the same discussions with Logan Heights, right? right? So Erica, Erica Torrey, who's, who's the head of the Athenaeum, her, she has like unfailing vision. And for both places, she like said, I'm going to, I'm going to do everything I can do to convince the board that this is the way to go. And of course she knew it was a beautiful space. So she brought them the instructional studios part and salt is fantastic we also have um a, we have the only permitted indoor glass making shop wow. in san diego yeah. kathleen mitchell's space art hell and it's it's beautiful and, and they back back to the artisans and just now we have we were very lucky in this during the pandemic we got a fascinating beer concept now hold on don't poo-poo it it's a, I know beer, breweries are a dime a dozen, but this one's a little bit different. It's called uh, Los, uh, Las Mujeres. Mm. It's women-controlled. Uh, women will be brewing. Women will be working front of house. It's an incubator where they'll be teaching women how to do all these things mm. with the hopes they'll leave Mujeres and start their own breweries elsewhere. Mm. So, and, and also t uh, learning the business of brewing. Uh, so it's a it's an incubator wow. brewery, yeah. which is for women, which is groundbreaking. There's nothing like that in San Diego. I've never heard of that, such a thing. Yeah, me neither. That's amazing. When is this uh, project starting? Right now. Wow. They're they're they're, they're just at the last week. Is there going to be? So, so I live I live right on Dewey Street. <laughs> so I I live like a caddy or what do they call it when it's like I live like right on the corner of Dewey and Kearney. Oh, oh, evil! I can't believe it, evil. Yeah, we're, like, so we're like, neighbors. We're at, like our, you're like at you're like at Ralph's yeah. Motoro's office, and I didn't even know that. And now I know that I learned that you live across the street. So, are they going to be in that space that was by that other? There was another brewery, right? At some yeah. point. That's okay, it. and then That's they're going to cool. they're going to invigorate. They're going to take over the loading dock for outdoor yeah, eating. Yeah, I always wonder like why yeah. they didn't spread out into that space because because that space is not really. Yeah, a few times I with the last the last place that was there, they had, um, they would do like little parties and stuff like that. No, it seems like we we were sold. My wife Isabel and I were so sold on Mujeres, their concept. Yeah. That we we literally we met them one huh. day, and they described their concept, and I reached in my pocket wow. and I gave them the key. <laughs> And I said, if you shake on this, 
it's done. done. <laughs> and we shook, and it was done. That's awesome. Awesome. That's <laughs> and I gave him the key. They were a little appalled and scared. <laughs> freaked out. Who's who's heading who's heading this project? Yeah. It's a it's a group. Okay. It's a club. They they, they they were holding their club meetings at Border X. Mm-hmm. So Border X yeah. is underwriting it. But the Mujeres have full That's upon. great. I love that. It's interesting that um just from a kind of like a trans perspective, I guess. I'm realizing that there's a lot of more Maybe it's just me, but a lot of more like this um, return to like artisan type of crafts. And, you know, like you were describing that they're not just going to make beer. They're also going to teach people. It's like this sort of like a guild idea, right? Where you're or like an apprenticeship type of model. Have you have you noticed anything like that or I've definitely been noticing the resurgence of that and, and nothing can make me yeah, happier. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. <laughs> We're getting to the point where like you're like the furnishings that you buy, that everyone yeah. owns the same thing. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. yep. All of our stuff in our house is all the same, same stuff. Like nothing's, and it's all poorly made to boot. So it has a lifespan of just a few handful of years and then we throw it in the trash. But to have people like, learning how to make stuff and creating it and it's it's the quality is so much higher yeah it will last your whole a lot of the work will last your whole lifetimes and you can hand it down like it used to be yeah so that's a it's an incredible new phenomenon and i i think it will continue to get stronger and stronger i love i love seeing it a lot i love the idea that a lot of young designers are doing it more and more a bigger percentage of architectural firms are going design build too right it's it's really interesting yeah it's It's really interesting to me that um you have this kind of like it's almost becoming like a hub and it seems like uh it's like more geared towards like for the people and you know obviously you're an architect um with with brand salt and and that you work with peter eisenman (laughs) which i remember watching a video when i was in school of him and he was pretty much saying he said something along the lines of like architecture is for the sake of architecture, like fuck the people. I don't care about people. I care about architecture. And it's like, <laughs> and you're like the complete yeah. opposite of that. So I don't know. <laughs> well, like he was, he was the complete opposite. Then my next, my next uh, employer was Ted Smith. Yeah. He was like <laughs> yeah. a co-housing phenom and it pretty much rewrote the book on it. So yeah, I, I still, I mean, but working for Peter Eisenberg. Yeah. I've... Awesome. Because it's exactly what you say. Uh, I'll tell you one quick story about a client meeting with Dyson. <laughs> so I had a great job. So I, I, he was coming back from Europe, and I, I went back to Florence for a, after I graduated. I went back for another like eight months. So I was coming back to San Diego, and I was visiting my buddy Chuck Crawford in New York City just to say hi, just because my flight went through mm. there. So I, I, I said I'm going to have like two nights. I'll stay there two nights and then go back home. And I arrived, he picks me up at the airport. I said, okay, what are we doing? We got two days. He goes, we're doing nothing. I, I have this competition that I have to finish for my boss, Peter Eisenman. He goes, well, okay, I'll just, I'll just help you. So we didn't go anywhere. We just stayed in his apartment. We did this really fun thing. It was a Romeo and Juliet competition. You should look it up. You can Google it. It turned out good. So um, we, there were three pieces of glass. And like each kind of held apart by a little spacer. 
so you could see through it. But then this is we we every piece of glass had an image on both sides. So there's six layers of images mm. that you can see through, and like they kind of form a 3D image in some in some ways. But it was really it turned out good. We did the whole thing in two days with brisket paper, right? So we put this tacky paper on the glass, and then it, it had printed on it was a design. We cut it out by hand with an exacto knife. And then peel it up, and then spray paint it with just like a airbrush spray. And we we took it in, and Chuck, Chuck said, "Hey, before you leave, why don't you come in and meet Peter, just to say <laughs> hi to him?" I said, "Oh, would that be okay?" He goes, "Yeah." And so I went in, and Peter like looked at the work. He goes, "That's great. Did you did you so did did this guy help you, Chuck?" And he goes, "Yeah, that's my friend from college." And he goes, "You want a job?" And then. And then in the, over the weekend, Chuck had been telling me stories about how cheap Peter Eisner was. Didn't want to pay. I said, I want a job, but you have to pay me. And then he like, Eisner like crossed his arms and he kind of looked at Chuck like, you asshole. But <laughs> <laughs> he said, okay, I'll pay you. So, then I, so I had this great job where like, I, he, I was working directly with him on two separate jobs. One was Ohio State University where he did this kind of uh, decomposing castle thing and then the what was the and the other one was like a basic loft for a, a, a wealthy couple in new york and this is the story i have to tell you this is so beautiful i forget their names this loft but eisenman when i joined the project the design was just about there so he said i want you to go to a meeting tonight with the clients and take notes don't say anything mm -hmm. okay so the, the meeting was at the client at, at the, the site this gigantic loft with huge tall ceilings it was stunning just the empty loft was beautiful and the only thing in the loft was this table and four chairs wooden everything was wooden and it's really echoey in there because it has a wood floor you know it's brick think of one of those tin ceilings you know really loud so we sit down and eisenman presents the project it's a beautiful project we basically created rooms within the larger room so they all had their own ceilings on them so the space there's empty space above it so there was one wall on, on the exit on the outside of the bathroom, I think it was. It was seven foot eleven inches tall from the hardwood floor to the top. And the and the client goes, Peter, as you know, I'm an artist. And my paintings that I'm doing right now are eight feet tall. Now that's from like frame to frame. They're eight feet tall. I don't mind putting them on the ground, but it bothers me that there'd be that one inch kind of like it would stick up one inch. Could you like raise that wall just like one inch, just so it's flush? And Eisenman looks at her and he stands up and the chair goes <laughs> and it on. And like we all kind of jumped. It was so loud. And then you know he's wearing his bow tie, he was wearing bow ties, you know, with suspenders, like total freak, you know, like old school. And so he starts, puts his hands behind his back and he starts pacing. And we're all three of us looking at it. Like a, it's like a tennis match. And it seemed like 45 minutes, but I mean, honestly, I swear to God, it was like two full minutes Damn. of pacing, which yes. is an eternity. <laughs> Everyone was so uncomfortable. He's pacing, he's thinking, his head was down, furrow, brow furrowed, he's thinking, thinking. Oh, no, oh, wait, one other detail to, is that the, the husband was deaf. Oh. So, like, you had, to, you had to kind of look at him to know what was going on. 
Seattle to see you, Tom. So um, finally, he stops pacing, and he he kind of straightens his head and goes like the weight <laughs> of the world. You know, how dare you? How dare you even like talk to me about function? These pedestrian <laughs> bullshit things that you people apparently fixate on. He reaches down with like one finger to catch the, the, the back of the chair that was like still oh. on the ground. Rips it in slow motion until it like catches its own balance and then it goes like <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> it's so dramatic. Which was unreasonably loud in this like echoey space. And he sits down and puts his elbows on the table, looks at her and says can't do it. <laughs> she goes, what? She starts crying. She starts crying and yelling. Oh my God. Just do it. And he's like, looks and says, I'm not, listen, I'm not going to fucking move that oh, wall. No. <laughs> I designed this project exactly how it must be. And that's it. We're not even talking about this anymore. And like, I was sitting there like, you know, as the note taker. <laughs> Oh my god. I was trying to like maintain a stoic demeanor, but I was so excited. <laughs> Jesus Christ, architects apparently are, are gods of some sort. Like I didn't believe this was happening. Wow, that's so dramatic. <laughs> it was so great. You know, Peter Eisman. He's great. He was so great. I love Peter Eisman. Yeah, sounds like it. That that must have been a fun I time. I ended up quitting. <laughs> he ended up quitting. I was, I was, I was, an, I was like an overly confident young recent graduate of college, <laughs> and uh, I thought he was like giving me too much direction on the pro other project I was doing with him, the Ohio State project, because we would just meet twice a day. Like he'd come in in the morning and like look at my. It was all design and model look at the model the changes that i made and then he'd give me direction i'll try this try that try this and i then i'd work you know till the next day and he'd look at it again and then it got to the point where i was making some great moves i loved what i was doing and then he came in and said i don't like that i want you to do this and this and i go no that's not the right thing i mean i really have it down here and i told him why i was better than his idea and he goes well yeah you might do that but i'm i'm you know i'm <laughs> yeah, the boss yeah. i want you to do this i go no i'm not wow. doing it my, I'm telling you, my idea is better. And I tried to explain it again. He said, and I'm telling you to change it. I go, I'm not changing it. I'm not changing it. I fucking quit. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, I had a bit of a problem. I probably had a bigger problem. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Man. Yeah. It was all for the love. It was all yeah. for the love of No, I can imagine. Were there a lot of people in his office at that time? I think there's oh, wow. about six or eight. Mm, that's a good size, though. That's yeah. a great interaction. How yeah, it was. It was a great office. He, he loved sports. Wow. So oh. he was like, we had a softball team, which, of course, he played on every <laughs> week, too. So it was a pretty tight office. And he would, I just remember it was a great debater. He would, uh, he would invite other people from other practitioners from New York and uh, teachers and just they just open up a topic and then they just start fighting. <laughs> they start debating, but it was like it was like a fight to the finish. You know, they wanted to destroy yeah. each other. Like, he he seems he seems like the really type to do that. 
How how different was that coming into Ted's world? <laughs> oh man, it was night and day. You know, Ted Ted was just Ted was working with my my good friend Robin Riesbois, who I also went to school with. And I when I got to San Diego, I was I said, Hey Robin, what are you doing? He goes, I'm working for this guy Ted Smith. I would have never heard mm. of him. I knew nothing about him. <laughs> and I didn't even look him up because you know you didn't yeah. even you didn't even look people up back then. So I just showed up and see what he was doing. And I loved what they were doing. They were doing this innovative work in the suburbs mm -hmm. called Go Homes, mm -hmm. where they would you take a single family house and turn it into a six six unrelated person apartment co-housing yeah. to make it affordable for people to own. And everybody would own a small share of the house. So, so the basic concept behind it was there would be a shared living room and kitchen right in the middle. And then it was surrounded by six bedrooms all with their own bathroom and all with their own entrance in entrance, both into the middle, the common space, mm -hmm. and also more importantly, mm -hmm. out to the outside. So there were really six front doors. So it made it possible for six people that didn't know each other to live together. Mm. So that, that's the go, the co-housing go home concept that Ted started in San Diego very successfully. And it was great. So I, I asked Ted if he was hiring and he said, yeah, I think so. I got a couple projects. So I started working there immediately. I worked there for a long, I worked there three years and then I went on my, on my own. Wow. But I learned how to, I really learned how to build houses there because mm -hmm. we not only designed go homes, but we, we, me and Robin and a couple other people built them too. So I learned how to frame. That's great. There. Did... Yeah. yeah. And I learned, I learned, I learned from watching Ted how to have the guts to be a developer right. because once you see yeah, it, right. done, it kind of it demystifies yeah it. are you are you developing um as well yeah i have a couple i've done a couple and i i have a couple more in the works one in chula vista nice. in old chula vista right behind third, third avenue which is a really really good nice part of town i always love chula vista old third avenue because when i moved to san diego in the 70s that was a really vibrant hot spot. Hmm. It's since, you know, after then about two years, three years after I moved back or moved here, um, they built a new, like a, a shopping mall in Chula Vista at H and Broadway. And everyone abandoned old third Avenue, all the little mom and pop shops. No one would go to them because they do all their shopping yeah. at the Sears, you know, the, the other big stores. And so it, it it's been like four, it's been in decline for like 40 years, but now it's coming back with a vengeance as people rediscover the beauty of living in a house and, or an apartment and walking one block away to a, yep. like a little main mm -hmm. street as all mom and pop owned businesses. That's, cool. that's great. I mean, this conversation sort of comes up, uh, I would say fairly uh, a lot <laughs> of uh, how, you know, architects are sort of losing their I don't know, I guess like power or control, like the practice is not, it's not what it used to be, you know, it's sort of like being, we're less and less involved. And we always talk about, I, I mean, to me, like the, the model of architect uh, as developer, it's sort of like taking back that sort of power or control that we used to have, you know, in making decisions. Um, and I mean, I'm very familiar yeah. with that. I live in one of uh, Mike Burnett's buildings. Uh, and I've seen it throughout Woodbury. Um, I don't know. Do you think? Do you think that's like a that's the model to follow as a as an architect, or because like the 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 traditional client 
architect relationship, it's sort of like, I mean, not, especially on a small scale, not going like towards what it used to be. I mean, it's sort of morphing. It seems like San Diego is a real hot spot, mostly due to the real estate development program mm-hmm. at, yeah. at um, Woodbury. It's a hot spot for architect yeah. developers, and it's wonderful. It's it's key. I agree. I think it's the. I I can't imagine doing architects doing anything. Yeah. Different because it's so invigorating to make your own decisions. You know, raising your own money, building wealth. Yep. You know, personal wealth to yourself by owning property. But the control aspect is yeah. the most fun thing. Mm-hmm. creative yeah. control although i still like i i most about more than half of my work is with the typical developer architect model mm-hmm. that i i'm just the architect and i especially love that i love that model i have it, i'm working with a really really um progressive developer society so the, the society of master craftsmen uh, ben longwell he's a, he's a young guy really young developer but he believes in, like I do, in the power of hands-on craft and detail. So he has, in the two projects I work with him, and I did his first development ever, it's it's fully framed out now over on Adams Avenue, kind of close to the mm-hmm. bonds in Normal Heights. Uh, he believes in like inviting craftsmen in to do small bits and pieces. So we have line items, like for little, for finishes, for for special pieces, for, for metal panels, where artists and craftsmen will come in and add to the building, um, you know, in a strategic that's, way. In a, in a room. That's super cool. That's, that's really beautiful. Yeah, yeah it's, not, it's, not, it's not like the typical, like you hire a big construction company and that's like everything. It becomes like generic. So you're almost like personalizing that building. Yeah, it's neat. And we're doing a second one now. We just submitted to the building department. Oh, the funniest thing happened with that second <laughs> one. I think I told... I told uh, Ralph, Ralph and Coderos office yesterday. So we submitted it for completeness review, right? Uh-huh. You do that online uh-huh. now. So for people out there that don't know what that means, I mean, they look at your set of plans and make sure you have all the necessary pieces in it before they even bother reviewing it for, for code worthiness. So you usually get an email back that says, yeah, you got complete, it's complete. Now we're going to start the, the, the uh, review process. But they pushed the wrong button. And they gave us a building permit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> wow. I think that's, that's so good. Ben called me and told me, the developer, he goes, yeah, they gave us a building permit. I go, uh, <laughs> you're not going to, are you? No, I'm not going to. <laughs> that's that's got to tell you, that's a sign of how the city's working right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Kind of a little bit related, but yesterday um, you were talking about how I forget what you called it that it, the, they were basically trying to revise the the code to make it more um, oh, accessible. Yeah the, city's, yeah, the city's doing a great thing. I mean, already. Uh, so is it at the city level history, or is it at the? It's this is hmm. city level, but a quick history is housing in San Diego. We we've, we've had for my whole career for thirty years. There's been a there's been a really low vacancy rate below 5%, which means there's not enough housing, right. basically. That's what tells you. But so then these, these municipalities, including San Diego, all over California are doing the same thing. They're not providing affordable housing. So the state actually had to step in and make these rules that allow developers to get density bonus bumps, like you could build more units than normal if you provide some percentage of low-income housing. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that you can do 
They're, you get three incentives. So you can say things like, I don't want to park. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to park this project. There's going to be no cars. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, I'm going to be closer to the property line on this side, you know, than, 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 than allowed. Anything that's not life safety, you can, you can ask mm -hmm. for and they have to give it. So that, that was really helpful in getting more units out there. So a lot of these, a lot of the uh, Woodbury red uh, graduates are using these density bonuses. Now there's a new one that's about to come. It's an incredible one. Now this one is initiated by the city of San Diego. So I have to hats off to the city. Good job. This one is form based density. So you calculate how many total square feet your lot is allowed to have. There's formulas already existing for that number. And then you're able to put as many units mm -hmm. as you can within that amount of square mm -hmm. footage. So it's up to the designer and the developer. It's going to put a lot more units out there. It's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be really interesting to see what happens. Now, in exchange for this tool, uh, the city's asking for a bigger percentage mm -hmm. of affordable housing, a lot bigger which is fair. I think that's completely fair to ask for that. Yeah. So it's going to be, it's going to make a big difference in the affordable affordability of, of San Diego apartments. Big difference. Yeah. 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 It's great. So they haven't decided they're about to do it. Like it's going to drop uh, any month. <laughs> I, I forget the, um, it's there. What's the minimum requirement to make a habitable space? I know, I know it's like seven feet by eight or something. Yeah, uh, like how, <laughs> how small? How small? Can you well, get I mean, them? like I'm not, I'm not saying go that small, but you know, but I mean, at some point, if you, if no, you, if you're no, trying to, I'm you know, like fit as many as you can, and you're also trying to contribute to like affordable housing, there's got to be some sort of balance, and obviously, you know, like small, yeah. it's kind of like efficient, I guess <laughs> I should call it. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not again small. I've lived yeah, in some right. really, really small places, and I mean, we can look at the models of the Japanese and other places in Asia that where where this yeah. is implemented and it works great. But um, and here in the U.S., I mean, we always want more and more space. But I just can't remember as far as like the code goes, what's the smallest to like make it a habitable space. I should know this. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I don't know yet, but won't it be great to just? I mean, obviously, any one project needs a likes that sometimes likes to have a spectrum of sizes but the project they have under construction now over on adams it those are micro housing units and they're small like the typical unit there is they vary a little bit but the typical the, the typical kind of configuration is less than 12 feet wide 24 feet long and 18 feet tall oh that's nice that's nice that's it hmm. it's, a, it's a nice it's a nice volume so it feels good, but it's tight, and there's there's a lot of glass in it. Yeah. It's so tall. There's a, we we spent. I always try. Well, I always put more windows, you know, than than the budget that is smart. <laughs> as far as when you have to pay for it in projects, because that's the, yeah. that's the key to nice spaces. Is, is yeah, definitely. But those for those for the, that base that I described, it doesn't give you a lot of room. I mean, you're you you have especially on the ground floor. The bathroom already has to be pretty big. Because yeah. of the adaptability requirements. For, yeah. uh, so you're sleep, sleeping above the bathroom. There's a mm -hmm. little spiral that gets you up there. And then the, the kitchen is just 11, 11 foot long against the far wall. And that's it. Now, so there's not a lot of space to hang out, right? There's no like real living room. So we're not parking the project at all. There's 16 units, zero cars. And there's a commercial space, no cars. 
but we we have really ample outdoor hangout space for the tenants. So they'll be spending a lot of their time. Yeah, I mean, outside. that's that's great. I mean, it takes a certain. I mean, I guess it's it's like for a certain demographic, you know. Obviously, I mean, it, yeah, it's not a family deal. Yeah, it's not a family deal, <laughs> and like, yeah, you just got to know your audience, I guess. Like, who who are the people are going to be renting? Yeah. The project that we're going to do behind Bread and Salt, we have that's our next phase for Bread and Salt, kind of like the completion uh-huh. of the thought, is to provide the things that we're short of is stu- more studio, um, yes. private studio space for mm-hmm. artists, artisans, and so we really don't have a lot in, in the building. And also housing, so we'll be doing live work housing for artists and artisans behind, and that'll be characterized as it's really only for single yeah. people or couples again, not families, but it'll be very small living space, and then a door. Yeah, I, 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 we're we're not going to have the artists work in there where they sleep, but really small, and then a door that goes into a double height space for their work for their mm. for for their art making. Mm. So. Tiny living and big art, and they're kind. Of, you can kind of imagine how you can yeah. kind of nest those together. Yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. That's that. That'll be kind of the. When are you expecting to uh, complete yeah. this? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> right, right after the park. <laughs> it's time. Yeah, I mean, I, time. I would assume you have a lot going on, and um, how how big is your off? How big is your office? Yeah, just me. I oh, really? Wow. So you do yeah. all all the um. I know you like technical drawing, but at some point, you know you're well, on on the one that's under construction now in Adams. Um, my longtime mm-hmm. employee Johnny Stevens did the drawings, but on this one that we just submitted, I did all the drawings. Wow, and I like it. I like yeah. <laughs> that's gonna be that's cool. That's gonna be my mom forward. I I like like I said I yeah. I do like drafting. Mm-hmm. And it's a good way to continue the design process. Yeah. It's faster than you think. You take up a lot of time, like, trying to tell someone what to do and then, like, t- correcting the work. It, it, you know, sometimes you don't exactly sync with you. Yeah. So there's a cert- there's a huge efficiency in there, too. Yeah. Plus, it's the way, it's the way I want to end my career, just mm-hmm. doing less projects, but just kind of doing it all. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah, I think... Uh, um... Uh, I was reading this interview with Peter Zumther and he, he also likes like technical drawings and he mentions that you get to learn more about a project and like, like you said, develop it further by working on the drawings yourself. And it's, it's pretty interesting to see someone like that, you know, and, and who has been practicing for so long that, you know, enjoys that aspect. Cause like in this business or the practice, we kind of tend to like drift away from that as, as we, get further in our careers and, you know, hire more people, obviously. But I guess, yeah, when, when, when the scale like presents it or like if you're not that busy, I mean, I think it's great that you, you can push that. Yeah. I'm a complete, I'm a, I mean, I know how to draw obviously in AutoCAD, but I'm, I'm a crappy AutoCAD. So do you do, do you do it by hand or what? Oh, no, no. Yeah. I, I, no, I can draw in AutoCAD for sure. You know, I, I, my layer management leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one question that I kind of wanted to ask about the about the park. Um, so I think it was one of the questions that I sent you, but uh, I was kind of reading through the build the park, and one of the statements that kind of popped out to me was this quote: 
that says along the lines of the idea that citizens from both countries are together without constraints in an intermediate zone between two sovereign nations had a galvanizing effect on us. Um, can you expand on this? Because I'm, I, I guess me, I'm, I'm not really interested in this idea of like a, like a self-sovereign zones that exist sort of outside of the, like the nation-state concept. Yeah, no, I, what I, that was part of a. That was kind of a story about how I first became acquainted with the possibility of a binational mm -hmm. park, if it could really work. And it was an example of a bridge uh, crossing the Rio Grande and, and the idea and where they had the checkpoints on this bridge. The way they were doing it was if you were a, a U.S. citizen walking into Mexico, the checkpoint for Mexico wasn't until you were all the way across the river and already well into Mexican territory. Mm -hmm. And only then did you come to that checkpoint. And likewise, on the same bridge, if you were uh, a Mexican citizen walking into the U.S., you wouldn't go come to the U.S. checkpoint till all the way well into the U.S. after you crossed the same river and you came to that checkpoint mm -hmm. well on that side. So I was thinking, my goodness, they're citizens of both countries are already together in this binational space. I mean, albeit it's a very controlled situation, it's a bridge, but it's already being done. It's, you know, it's, it, it, it happens all the time. You're just not mm. kind of aware of it sometimes. So that, that sort of started some thinking, well, what if we did like this vast space using that same, that same theory? Mm. How, how could we pull that? I, I think that's where that quote came from, the genesis of that, that, that statement. That's interesting. So there's no, it's not a, it's not a sovereign that, that would, it's not, maybe you saying sovereign space is poor use of words. Okay. You know? yeah. It's a shared, it's a shared. Yeah. Yeah. To me, to me, it, it almost speaks to like a larger, I guess, like commentary. Like I don't, I don't, I'm not too big on borders, you know, like a lot of people, like I don't really believe, I it, believe in them. It, it seems like, the more defined they are, the more problems they cause. So, I mean, to me, this is like a great exercise of, of, of testing out like a sort of like a borderless space region, you know? And um, I think it could work great, but I mean, we shall see. It's, it's definitely like a great, great fight that I fully support and I'm very interested in. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know as far as like the technicalities, but the idea seems, seems that it's heading in a good direction. Uh, thank you. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. I'd, I think that it can work honestly. Um, cause it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I just noticed, you know, like you were saying how, where, how we, where we are, you know, in like the current political climate for lack of a better word. Um, and there's some, this is like one of those things that you kind of just need, uh, this type of energy to come into the conversation. That's, that is neither, neither the, it, it's like, it's like, a it's like an argument that exists outside of either of both political parties, you know, it's like an idea that's not, yeah, it, yeah it's like, it's neither the you know oh um yeah stronger borders or anything like that it's it's like a 
you you can't really like pin it down you know not neither one of the parties is going to be able to like take it in a, in a sense right yes I, I think that's one of the that's that bodes well for this eventually being accepted it doesn't depend on one yeah. party or the other yeah 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 exactly yeah cool well do you um have anything else for jim abel Enjoy talking to you guys about stuff. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Thank you for being. Yeah. Yeah, thank oh, you. Thanks. I, you have yeah. great, great stories and a great yeah, perspective. Great oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe you know, next time I'll tell you some Ted Smith stories because these. Oh, that'd be great. Equally <laughs> as awesome. Yeah. I mean, we would have a, to have him on. You should. You got to get him on. That'd be a great. That'd be. Yeah. Yeah. I know Ted's super interesting. Last time I saw Ted was I visited his uh, new building in Hillcrest, yeah. and he called it <laughs> he called it something like along the lines of um, ca- capitalist commie communism uh-huh. or something, <laughs> something like that. Like, it's very uh, capitalism <laughs> for commies. Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> it was like, wow, that sounds cool. <laughs> But uh, it's it's definitely an interesting model that what they're doing there, you know, as far as like ownership yeah. and how they're track. I'd be interesting to know uh, the technicalities of how they're tracking ownership because I mean I'm sure you're familiar with what they're doing there. And, and, I haven't uh, been inside of it. Yeah, I was a two last year, not not this year's orchids and onions, but last year I was a judge, yeah. and mm-hmm. we and nice. someone someone nominated that for an onion. <laughs> some, some idiot. So like, uh, so we're on the bus going like, cause we have to look at everything. Right. So we're on the bus going there and I, I made like a motion or like sent out an email, like saying, I would like to, I would like to personally nominate this project, not for an onion, but for the grand orchid. And I, think, <laughs> nice. I think that sufficiently freaked people out that like they decided not to even like comment on it. They just drove by. It's like, let's not deal with this until next year when it's really done. <laughs> Yeah, that's that 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 that's that's a crazy model that for the org. I mean, I, I'm, I'm I guess it's like, in its own, it's it's good to have that the public gets to kind of nominate, and it's just like anybody can nominate a building, yeah. you know, without having like an architecture background. Which, I mean, I guess I have mixed feelings on, but I mean, it's great that just anybody can do it, you know, because I always we always even as architects we always get sometimes, I guess upset or not upset, but you know, like we take criticism from whoever, but you know, like obviously it would hold a lot more weight coming from someone like you, as opposed to like the average Joe who's like a dentist, you know, and like, and like doesn't have like an architecture or design background um, as far as like criticism. But I mean, I think it's, I don't know. It's interesting that the orchids and onions do that, right? They just, anybody can just nominate buildings and then they kind of like throw them up. I kind of like that. I mean, you don't want it to be the same, the exact same as the AIA awards. It, it's nice that it has some yeah. flavor, but you know, the way it used to work when they first mm-hmm. did it, it didn't have a jury. It was purely the vote of the people. They would just count them. Oh, wow. And so you would get these, or these orchid winners that were God awful like the public <laughs> then you would get you would get onions that were done by great architects like um rob yeah. quigley or tom grando i yeah. think that's good to even wow. so you got you had these really innovative buildings that were winning onions but it was it was a big joke <laughs> yeah 
No, even even like a couple years ago, I think it was last year or the year before. I think um, one of Mike's building, my landlord Mike Burnett, he his like Hillcrest uh, project, that red one <laughs> over oh, yeah. there. Uh, uh, it got nominated for an Onion, I think. You know, it's like that was uh, <laughs> that was that was really interesting. Even I think like even Rob uh, Rob Quigley wrote a um, a little piece on that, like on the reader. Oh, or did something. he? I didn't. Uh, uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it, it it was a really nice letter though of kind of like defending that project. I think people were just put off by the color and like the siding of it. That was it. Yeah, but I don't know. It's just it, yeah, it's just the model of just like anybody can do it. It's I mean, it's good. It's good in a way. It's like sobering for us. Our, yeah, I think it's yeah. good because it's yeah, it's like an open forum. Yeah. You know, have people talk about stuff. That's sometimes it can get. Uh, we talk about how you know we're like in a bubble sometimes we're just kind of talking to other <laughs> yep, architects exactly <laughs> um one question that i was just kind of thinking about uh, for the bread and salt kind of, yeah how do, how do you find out like who like projects that are gonna go in you know like the artisans that are gonna go in or do you like i, I think you guys have like a um a program right for uh, Oh, you That's have a residency yeah. program in there, right? We yeah, have a residency, residency program. program. We, we, we used to kind of do everything. I At the very beginning, I think I tried to make all the decisions. I was making too many stupid decisions, too. I'm not involved anymore in, in our art curation, like our, the art, the fine art curation, like mm. our artist and residency program, as well as the art that we hang in our, in our two galleries. That is our curator, Tom. We have a curator, Tom DeMello really great really good talented curator and um, my wife Isabel Dutra is the artistic director so they work together Mm -hmm. I sort of try and handle everything else like who's going and who's coming into Mm -hmm. the building where are they going to be what are our what are our strategic plans moving forward what what things we try and make stronger uh, emphasize so I'm I'm kind of like a you could just call me the building manager. <laughs> I sweep the sidewalks and told you. Did you make the decision of that mural, that huge mural that's on the side of it, the ice cream? Uh, I think that's. The, oh, oh uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, punk. Yeah, punk. Oh, she's she's great. I, yeah, I no, love that. Actually, I think I'm overstating that we're we're not really that that far apart from each other. No, we all love Paula. She. She's been working, Panko, she's been working, you know, in and around the building for our entire history. Like, wow. In fact, yeah. we just tapped her to do another mural on, 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 the, on the other side of the building in that um, in that loading dock area that's going to service Mujeres. That's gonna great. Pretty, uh, okay. She's going to do a pretty aggressive political mural over there. So that, stay tuned. That's, that's, that's what we need. Good. So on the side, she yeah. has kind of the like the, you know, stars and happiness, uh, ice cream coat yeah, on, one side. <laughs> on the other side, there's some serious punching going on. So yeah, I got to, <laughs> that's always interesting about her work. You know, you get kind of blindsided. Yeah. She'll, she'll, she'll have these seemingly like just friendly, uh, almost like not even dealing with any topics whatsoever, artwork. Yeah. And then like in between or in the margins or on the edges, there's some really hard hitting commentary like really rough and sometimes mm. very violent yeah in, in storytelling it's very interesting her work is really interesting that way yeah I, I love her work i'm you know probably trying to get something before she blows up a little piece uh, <laughs> hey buy something on our website we have a way we sell art on our website oh really a uh, bread and salt i think it's, I think oh. it's 
I think it's reachable. Like her Los Perdidos yeah. um, um, uh, series, we have that up on our walls in our new art vault. We have a new space called the art vault. Sweet. So, so is it what breadandsalt.com or? Uh, bread and salt, San Diego. Okay. Sweet. Because you know it's going to be bread and salt, New York next. No, actually, <laughs> some, for some reason, bread and salt was taken. I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Is there anything that you would like to see be be done at Bread and Salt, like or some you know? Well, I think I'm great. something else that's yeah, not I done. Think, yet. I think things are coming along pretty well. Um, yeah, we're going to continue to improve. There's always so much to do, but yeah. not all of it's not all of it's pre-planned either. But the main thing mm. that that I'm interested in, that we all are interested in doing now, is helping our artists like. I mean, we've been really good at having young artists, showing young artists and giving them some kind of notoriety in their own town. That, that's that been going pretty well. But the next thing we want to do is like be able to assist in launching our artists out of town and getting shows in mm. other cities, right? Yeah. That's a right. key. That's a difficult. We don't know how to do it, but we've been starting to think about it. That would be a nice achievement if we can pull that off. That's cool. So, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming you're a um, big art fan is there is there anything else that sort of inspires you as far as you know your design work and like the way you you work um do you just uh, read books or look at movies or um no. you just... i just start draw- i just start drawing really yeah interesting mm. <laughs> that's a good approach <laughs> <laughs> i have been gardening a lot lately really <laughs> I've been working at home, so I've, I've been enjoying the heck out of that. That's nice. Cool. Um, uh, one of the questions I like to ask is, um, is there anything that you've recently sort of become a fan of? You know, like music, books? Uh... Yeah, well, let's see. Where's that book? I just found this book. Actually, someone sent someone sent my wife and I a book. Hmm. Like, and we didn't know who it was. So this just happened last week. Hmm. So and we and even my wife's name was spelled wrong. I thought this person doesn't doesn't really know us that well, and it didn't say who it was from. We open it. The book is called Racing Alone. Mm. You heard you've heard of this book? No. It's by an Iranian American architect named Nader. Oh shit! And I don't have the book in front of me. Khalili, Nader Khalili. I think that's it. Mm. I'm ninety five percent that right. I think I'm right. So he. He's uh he was he was in Tehran, young, super young architect, and right when Tehran was introducing modern build, you know, building skyscrapers, steel and glass, yeah. and they were starting to like throw away the old ways of, of mud and brick buildings, yeah, because yeah? mm-hmm. of course those things fall down, but it turns out they don't fall down. They don't fall down. They can weather movement if you do it the right way. So he started researching how to fire entire buildings i just started this book so i'm no uh expert but it's uh-huh. really exciting <laughs> so he's, he's he's creating these mud structures then basically building fires in and around them putting a glaze on it and burning them and making a big bowl right a big inverted bowl ceramic bowl that's a strong as hell so uh, i just started i don't know i don't think i don't know if that answered your question or not but I, this is a this book just happened last week, so it's pretty interesting to read about. Oh, sounds like and a good was, read. Simultaneously, mm. my daughter 
and her boyfriend are doing this rammed earth project up in LA. She's a recent graduate of SciArc. Sweet. My daughter daughter Dutra. And so they got, they have like, she has a real pro, she has two real projects. One of them's like making like some rammed earth and then some custom tile. Her boyfriend's a ceramicist. So they're doing this great, these great little projects together. That's exciting. Yeah. I love watching watching her do her thing. Yeah. They're doing some great things in Oaxaca with rammed earth. Oh, yeah? Yeah. There were some really cool. I think there was a library that they did in a museum made of rammed earth. That was really, really cool. Um, It came down to Drew Hubble. You know, the Hubbles know a lot about such things. So. Uh, my daughter came down and talked to, to Drew Hubble about it. Drew lent them a couple books. Nice. Cool. Well, uh, I guess my last question is, um, do what kind of, would you give any advice to like any recent graduates for art, from architecture school? Uh, what would that be? <laughs> I guess it would be uh, to try as hard as you can to do projects like out on your own as soon as possible, no okay. matter how small. Yes. And then, Photograph the living hell out of them and get the word out. Totally. I think, I think going out on your own as soon as you can is, is a good idea. Try, yeah. try not to be too dependent on, on like consultants and outsiders for your product to be mm. possible. Mm-hmm. Do, as, do as much of it as you can so you can control the process a little bit. Why is that important, do you think? Because too many, like, too many bad things happen when you have to rely on others. Yes. Um, they, mm. they don't share the same vision. It's costly. You can't afford to hire other people. To... Right. So the, the more things you can do in-house and define by yourself, the closer to the vision that you have in your brain, the finished product will become. And there's no room for error. There's very little. I tell my, I'm teaching at San Diego State right now. And I tell mm. my students, your projects have to be good. Every single one of them has to be good. You don't have time to go decent project bad 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 decent no you have not you're you're already out you're out you got to go good <laughs> good better better you got to hit you got to hit you got to be you have to have a high batting average so if you put yourself in someone else's hands if you're relying on that their skill you're mm. you, you, you it's dangerous it's a dangerous situation so you got to control as much of it as you can Solid, solid. Yeah, that's, that's very heartwarming. That's, that's, that's solid advice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, uh, thank you for being with us today, Jim. Yeah, thanks yeah, a lot. This was. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, likewise. Thank, thank you. you.